Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Harshana Rambukwella about his new book, The Politics and Poetics of Authenticity, A Cultural Genealogy of Sinhala Nationalism, published by University College London Press in 2018. Dr. Rambukwella is a professor at the Postgraduate Institute of English at the Open University of Sri Lanka. He also serves as the director of the Institute. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Thank you for having me, Sami. Okay, and uh, uh, this book is available to be downloaded for free from the UCL Press website. Okay, so our first question is always biographical. So could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in Sri Lankan history and literature? Okay, uh, thanks, Sami. Um, Yeah, I uh, grew up in Sri Lanka in uh, a town in the middle of the country called Kandy. It's up in the hills. That's where I did all my uh, primary and secondary education. And then I entered university also, which is located uh, close to Kandy. It's called the University of Peradeniya. And I read for uh, a degree in English, English literature, uh, but all of my schooling and my home background was very much uh, bilingual, actually, mostly uh, Singhala. Singhala was always my first language. So I did my, uh, what is called the GCE A-levels in Sri Lanka, the public exam that you have to face before entering university. I did that entirely in Singhala, except for the English literature subject. Uh, and uh, uh, so Peradeniya, uh, we have a system where we... Uh, uh, you you start with uh, offering three subjects. So I did political science, sociology, and English. And then in your after your first year, depending on your results, you can opt to specialize in one of those subjects. So I chose to specialize in English literature, uh, and uh, that was I mean uh, Peradeni is a beautiful campus. It's it's located close to or on it, it it's actually bordered by Sri Lanka's longest river, the Mahavali River. Uh, and it, it, was, it was a wonderful place to uh, study. Uh, the only thing I, I mean, to kind of con- connect this a little bit with the topic that we are discussing today as well, is that I felt a certain kind of disconnect between the uh, quote-unquote standard English literature syllabus that I was following at campus uh, and my own life as uh, a person living in a what was essentially I mean a third world or developing country uh, where English was not spoken that much, uh, though I had a little bit of English from my family background as well. Uh, so there was uh, you know politically and culturally a certain kind of disconnect. Uh, and it was about uh, the third year, into the third year of the study program, the degree program, that I was able to find a way to bridge this sort of somewhat disorienting connection between my own life and what I was doing in campus uh, through literary theory. Because though the syllabus itself was heavily 
standard English literature. So we had sort of you know periodized uh, uh, study of English literature. So you had the, uh, the the Middle Ages, the Elizabethan age, the metaphysical poets, etc., like that. Uh, so, but I uh, with through theory, for instance, one was able to read. Shakespeare in a way that was relevant to uh, Sri Lanka, to my context. Uh, yeah, other than that, I mean, it was a fairly unremarkable uh, sort of lower middle class life uh, in, in, in Sri Lanka. So that, that, that was what my early life was. And thereafter, I didn't immediately join academia. I worked as a copywriter and editor for a not really a copyright, actually, an editor, copy editor, and a science writer for an international NGO based in Sri Lanka, which does natural sciences research, actually, in water and hydrology, uh, because that was the only job opening offered uh, or open at that point. Uh, and I did that job for about three years, which gave me quite good training in other ways, in, in sort of... Uh, reading scientific texts analytically and try to translate complex scientific content into uh, into policy briefs and other forms of communication for a more general audience. And then I got a chance to do my PhD at the University of Hong Kong. I got a full scholarship uh, and uh, I was married at that point. So my wife and I moved to Hong Kong in 2004 and uh, the PhD program there was... Uh, about uh, it, it was four years so I completed the PhD and then I worked at the University of Hong Kong as well in various capacities including as a lecturer uh, and I left Hong Kong in 2011 and returned to Sri Lanka and joined the institution that I'm working in currently the Postgraduate Institute of English so yeah that's great thank you so much uh, that's great it's always great to hear how uh, people got into their subjects and what their academic uh, trajectory uh, was. Um, as a side note, I've been to Kandy and it's such a, a beautiful city. Um, okay, so uh, you've talked about your PhD and um, from what I can tell, this book seems to have originated uh, you know, with your PhD dissertation. Could you tell us how and if the content of the book has changed from your dissertation and how you ended up structuring uh, this particular book? Right. Thank you for asking that question because it's it's not just about the biography, but also how sort of uh, the personal and the political kind of always mingle and the kind of choices that we make. Because when I went to Hong Kong initially, I went to do what you might call a standard post-colonial literary studies PhD. That was the, uh, the proposal on which I was based because in Hong Kong, obviously there were not many Sri Lankan experts, uh, but there was a fairly good scholar of post-colonial studies, post-colonial literary studies. So I was doing... English writing, Sri Lankan English writing, uh, and looking at it from uh, nationalism was always an interest for me. So I was sort of looking at the representation and the construction of nationalist discourse in a body of Sri Lankan writing in English. That's how I started out. But in 2005, I got an opportunity to go to the what is called the School of Criticism and Theory which is held each year. Uh, it used to be at Dartmouth, but uh, when I went, it, it had shifted to Cornell, where sort of, you know, some of the big stars in literary criticism kind of descend to earth. So 
I followed a, 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 a seminar program by uh, Professor Robert Young, who was quite big in post-colonial studies in the 2000s, and had the opportunity of uh, actually following a shorter course by Homi Baba, and uh, a lot of these are kind of the rock stars of uh, literary theory, if you like. But it was also fortuitous that uh, moved to Cornell, because right at that time, uh, one of the finest scholars of Sinhala literature and Sinhala cultural studies, who, who is today one of the finest uh, uh, scholars of in, in those areas, had just completed his PhD in medicine, Lianagiyam, Professor Lianagi Amarakirti, uh, who was supervised by Professor Charles Hallisey, who's at Harvard now. Uh, he had moved to Cornell as a Sinhala instructor because Cornell has a very strong South Asia program and students are required to learn uh, one of the South Asian, or if you're coming to Sri Lanka, the Sinhala or Tamil. So he, he taught Sinhala. So he also he also took part in this uh, school of criticism and theory. And we became very good friends over that summer. And one of the things he sort of pushed me is to think about why I can't bring my own cultural knowledge, my own uh, sort of, if you like, my habitus into my PhD study rather than simply limiting it to Anglophone literature. And that made a lot of sense because I had done 13, uh, I mean, yeah, 13 years of schooling in in Sinhala, and I, 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 I had a huge body of knowledge with me, which I had no sort of legitimate way of bringing into my PhD studies. So this opened up that possibility. So I went back and sort of much to the, uh, I think, I don't think my surprise in Hong Kong was very happy about it, but I sort of made almost a complete paradigm shift in how I framed the thesis. And I, uh, I also acquired another supervisor who is now a very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. John D. Rogers, who is the director of the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies. He's based out of Boston. Uh, and he is a historian by training. So he also then kind of changed my orientation more towards history. So actually the PhD ended up not being so much about literature, though there is a strong component of literature and sort of literary analysis methodology in how I read the texts. Uh, so, But it ended up more uh, of a kind of a textual analysis of an archive of material that represents nationalist discourse in Sri Lanka. So to go to the, the question per se, I digressed a bit. Uh, so I completed the PhD in 2008, long time ago, and the book came out in 2018, 10 years later. Uh, and one thing I don't, uh, or I... I, I, I I'm happy about that process is because I didn't have the pressures of tenure, etc. because I was not in an international university. I had shifted back to Sri Lanka. I could take a lot of time for the work that I had done in the PhD to really mature and my own thinking about that material to mature. And I had presented various aspects of the PhD in conferences at Cambridge, in Cambodia, in Sri Lanka, in the US, all over the place and received a lot of critical feedback. So I think that resulted in the production of a book that is on the one hand quite readable uh, and also uh, I was much more confident with the subject material as well. I had the kind of the, you know, the overview. I could stand back from the material and really kind of map the whole thing out. Uh, And I took real joy in the language, the writing of the book as well. 
all of which wouldn't have happened if I had tried to do this immediately after my PhD. It would have ended up as being, you know, quote unquote, a PhD book. Uh, and I, 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 I hope it is not now and that it's a better, it's better for that long period of gestation. So. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a, first of all, it's very readable, as you say, and uh, all these uh, influences really come through in the book now that you mention it. Um, I was curious how you got to the, the, the topic and, and that makes things clear. I, I was just wondering, because my question was sort of multi-layered and uh, way too many layers, maybe. Uh, could you also just uh, tell us how you structure the book so that we can get to the, to the argument and other stuff? Right. Uh, so uh, the book, uh, I mean, I've published, published certain sections of the book in sort of journal articles in the Journal of Asian Studies, uh, Boundary 2, etc. But the book, what the book as a whole does is it tries to, uh, uh, it, it takes three of what I call father figures uh, of single nationalism and places them in a certain kind of discursive line, uh, stretching all the way from the late 19th century up into the 20th century. And I show how uh, what is that, that there is a kind of a seeming continuity to this discourse, but that is very much a constructed continuity. And what the book does is go back to the lives of each of these protagonists and tries to show what nationalism, a sense of selfhood, and the sense of authenticity, which is, of course, the big topic in the book, uh, meant very different things to each of these people in their own context. Uh, But how, in retrospect, nationalism kind of constructs, nationalist discourse constructs a kind of a continuous discourse of authenticity, which actually does not exist in their own lives. But also the central theoretical question for me was having read a lot of material on nationalism and and material that deconstructed nationalism again, you know, ranging from like the work of Ernest Gellner to Benedict Anderson to Partha Chatterjee in India. The deconstruction of nationalism in a way was done and it's, it's in a way it's easy to do. Nations are not ontological realities. They, they are fictions in a way. Uh, what Homi Baba calls narratives, if you like. But the problem is, uh, can we leave it at that? Because yes, they are narratives, they're not ontologically real, but they perform extremely powerful, extremely uh, influential work at the level of everyday life and at the the level of institutions as well. So my question then was, what is this authenticity? How does it survive? And what is the kind of what are the kind of forces that drive this discourse? And that's the question to which I try to uh, turn back continuously in the book. I also I try to theorize, but at, at the same time, sort of bring up empirical examples of what authenticity means, and then discuss that in the book. Uh, so, yeah. Absolutely no, and that's that's perfect. Thank you so much. And this con- um, discussion of, of nationalism, um, you have a really great section uh, in your introduction. And now, getting to the question of authenticity, in my next question, you begin the book by introducing conversations surrounding the rendition of a song called "Dano Badunge" in 2016. You argue that at the heart of these conversations is the idea of apekama. What is the meaning of this term, and how does this episode get to the heart of the? Th- themes you're exploring in your book? 
Okay. Uh, again, thanks for that question. That's a really good question. So, uh, and it's it's kind of uh, a bit of a, uh, there's a bit of irony also that we are discussing this on the 4th of February. This uh, session is being recorded on the 4th of February, which is uh, Independence Day in Sri Lanka. And the incident I described in the book, the, the, the incident with which I start, uh, happened at the Independence Day celebrations in 2016. Uh, the word... Uh, is, is a singular, very ubiquitous singular word, which is used in in many different contexts. It essentially means something like there's no equivalent term in English, but it means something like otherness. How do we how do we say something is truly ours? What makes it ours? So it it could be food, it could be music, it could be a film, it could be uh, the way you behave. Uh, it could be your entire habitus, uh, to use a body term, uh, can be defined in terms of apekama. So the English cognate that I use for that is authenticity. Though the authenticity I'm aware in English has very different meanings and theoretically also philosophically it has other meanings as well. But to me, authenticity made the made more sense, uh, and and I try to define that in the introductory chapter. Try to distinguish it from its other uses to how it is defined in terms of uh, nationalism and nationalist discourse. So, uh, and the reason I start with this song is to show its sort of embodied cultural form, uh, and also how uh, sort of the idea that the, the, the tensions between form and content, not just in cultural artifacts, not just in artistic artifacts like songs, but even in the life of a person. So the content, now for instance, what happens with the song is that Dano Budunge was a song that was, uh, I think, first recorded in 1912 uh, for uh, a, a theater, uh, uh, for a, for a production it's called Nurti. Nurti was a very famous Parsi derived theater form that became very popular in Sri Lanka and the 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 story itself talks about a virtuous Buddhist king Uh, it's it's not directly a didactic play as such but it's it's about the life of a virtuous king who lived in Sri Lanka and the song uh, celebrates the beauty, the aesthetic beauty, as well as kind of the spiritual beauty of the ta- the city of Anuradhapura, uh, the first Singhala kingdom, the first Buddhist kingdom in the country, if you like. Uh, and uh, the song was actually, the music for the song was composed by an Indian composer called Vishwanath Lauji, who didn't know Singhala, and John De Silva, who incidentally the man who produced and directed the play and wrote the script, uh, was a convert. He was a Christian convert who had converted to Buddhism. And he was kind of plugging into kind of nascent Buddhist revivalist sentiments in Sri Lanka at that time. And that's why he produced plays like this. So the song uh, the song is a good example of how some a very kind of hybrid cultural artifact uh, becomes something very different uh, as it... Uh, sort of evolves through time uh, within nationalist discourse. So it starts with this sort of very hybrid history done by an Indian musician who didn't speak Singhala. John DeSilva had to explain the scene to him in English. Uh, And then it was actually sung initially in a kind of a semi-operatic style. So, sorry, I mean, to people who don't know about the book and don't know about this incident, what happened in 2016 was that uh, 
uh, a famous Sri Lankan tenor uh, sang this song at the Independence Day celebration. And many people felt that her style of singing, which was an operatic, uh, a Western operatic style of singing, uh, kind of harmed the uh, the authenticity of this song, the apekama of this song. Uh, and then that resulted in a big uh, kind of uh, social media as well as social debate, which was carried out in the mainstream press. And even the prime minister of the country kind of stepped into this debate and uh, uh, sort of talked about it. Uh, so the whole thing was about the style of the song. But when you dig back into the history of the song, you discover that the song was actually sung in this style uh, in the 1930s, etc. It's only in the 1950s, the time where I locate in this book where sort of authenticity as a discourse really becomes solidified is when the song gets its current tonality, current current shape, if you like, its musical shape. So it's, it's that's why I said it's, a, it's, it's this whole issue about uh, form and content as well, because the content remains the same. Uh, the debate is about the form, uh, and uh, so so there's this very interesting, philosophically interesting question about form and content as well. Uh, so not only for authenticity to be fully realized in a way, not only the content but the form also needs to align with that. Fantastic! Thank you so much. That's uh, you know, first of all, I really enjoyed the way you uh, began the book uh, with this uh, conversation or this episode, and uh, yeah, it, it it gets to the heart of uh, the book or the the theme you're looking at or um, authenticity. Um, now, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with Sri Lankan history, could you? give a brief outline of Sinhala nationalism in very broad terms. Uh, and in doing so, could you briefly explain the importance of the Mahavamsa? Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is always a very, very tough one uh, because, you know, uh, when, when you talk about nationalism as something that is definable, etc., you are adding to its fiction. As a, as a kind of a singular homogeneous kind of discourse. So what you what I attempt to do in the book is, of course, tell that story, but at the same time undermine it all the time. So it's it's always sort of this double move that you have to sustain. So singular nationalism, as it is understood today, I mean, a lot of people use the term singular Buddhist nationalism, which is okay in the current context, given the close alliance between Buddhism and singular ethnic identity. But it's, I think, for analytical purposes as well as political purposes, it's better to call it Sinhala nationalism or Sinhala plus Buddhist nationalism, if you like, because one must not forget that within the Sinhala community, there are non-Buddhists, there are Christians, there are Catholics, there are atheists, there are people of, you know, very, uh, there's, there is heterogeneity within Sinhala identity as well. So I think we... So when, when we either critique it or when singular nationalists use this term, we try to homogenize. So singular nationalism in its sort of modern formation, you begin to see it somewhere in the late 19th century. And it is tied to what is called in the anthropological and sociological literature, what is called the, uh, the Buddhist revival. That is uh, under British colonialism, after about a uh, hundred years of uh, British colonialism, of course, don't forget that Sri Lanka was colonized from the 16th century, at least parts of it, by the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and then the British. So you're talking about almost 450 years of various types of colonial occupation in the country. Uh, you, you get 
a kind of a, if you like, a, a, a kind of a renaissance of Buddhist thinking, Buddhist learning, etc. And Sinhala nationalism appears within this context, but it is not really a religious phenomenon at that point. It was much more of a linguistic nationalism. Uh, and there were parallel movements happening in South India as well with Tamil. So it was also inspired by that. So it was very much a linguistic uh, movement, which could include non-Buddhists as well within within its fold. Uh, so that was in the early 20th century. But I also need to make a distinction here. Singular nationalism uh, was not equivalent politically uh, or even culturally to Indian nationalism uh, because uh, see, most of the the Sinhala nationalist elite of that time were quite accommodative of uh, British uh, colonialism. I mean, in a way, they they were demanding certain kinds of flexibility within a colonial structure, but were not really looking at a complete overthrow of the colonial regime or complete decolonization. That comes much later in the 1940s. So uh, from about the 1920s, say the early 1900s to about the 1930s uh, and to the extent to the 40s, it's that singular nationalism is more a phenomenon about getting recognition for the singular culture, the singular identity and singular rights, if you like. Uh, it's it begins to turn into more of a mass movement in the 1931, actually, with what is called the Donomo reforms, when universal franchise is introduced to Sri Lanka uh, by uh, the the Donomo Commission. Uh, And in fact, again, ironically, many of the, not just the Sinhala, Tamil and Muslim elites of the time objected to this. They didn't want universal franchise because uh, it was not, uh, this kind of popular politics was not something they were used to. So suddenly from 1930s onwards, you have this sort of real elite scramble to become uh, representative politicians uh, of your community. And it is within this that you see a lot of the elite political figures trying to reinvent their public personas in in, in ways that position them as sort of decolonizing leaders or popular leaders. Uh, so that's what was happening in the in that period. Sinhala nationalism, in sort of its really current institutionalized majoritarian form, really begins to emerge in the mid 1950s, with particularly with the election of uh, S. W. R. D. Bandarnaik in 1956, the second protagonist in my book, who kind of rides a very powerful populist wave of Sinhala and Buddhist nationalism into power in 1956 and then implements the very controversial Official Languages Act, which makes Sinhala the sole official language of the country, which then he tries to change by 1958, resulting in ethnic riots. Uh, And then from there onwards, what you see from the 1950s onwards is Sinhala Sinhala nationalism really becoming an sort of really spreading its roots deep into the body politic in uh, in Sri Lanka through the education system, through popular culture, through mass media, and through institutional practice as well. Uh, and uh, uh, sort of ironically, many others have written about this. Single nationalism is like a majority nationalism with a minority complex because Singhala as a language, Singhala as an ethnicity is 
uh, is confined to the island of Sri Lanka. So, so globally, it's very much a minority, but within the country, it's a majority. But looking at sort of that global perspective, it kind of considers itself uh, uh, as something very vulnerable, something very uh, marginalized. And into that feeds this whole uh, narrative of colonial victimization as well, which I will come to a little later. Uh, and that narrative of victimization in some ways similar to what some, uh, for instance, what is happening in Israel with the Jewish narrative of victimization. It's it's a little bit similar to that. Uh, and that justifies a whole range of institutional, legal, and even military interventions later in the 1980s to protect single identity because it is seen as vulnerable. And uh, certain kinds of even affirmative action, which are usually taken in relation to minorities in other parts of the world, uh, are in place in Sri Lanka for the Sinhalese. Uh, so, and then nobody sees a problem with that because within Sri Lanka, Sinhala is all, I mean, many Sinhala nationalists see themselves as victims. And of course, the recent history of single nationalism is, I think, more widely known in the world in 1983. We have uh, the anti-Tamil riots uh, in which uh, thousands of Tamil people are killed and uh, and uh, rendered homeless. And alongside this rises Tamil militancy in parts of the Tamil community with the liberation tigers of Tamil Leela emerging as the most powerful militant force uh, and very soon becomes a very undemocratic force within the Tamil community itself as well. And then we have a long 30-year war which comes to a very bloody conclusion in 2009 with the defeat of the LTTE but of course the dream of Tamil nationalism has not gone yet and single nationalism's kind of insecurities are still very much visible now uh, those uh, sort of insecurities have the the, 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 or the or the main threat if you like to single nationalism today is seen as Islam and the Muslims of Sri Lanka rather than the Tamils so, so in a way that there has been a shift in that, but single nationalism is very much alive uh, today as well. Um, yeah. So that's Excellent. Like it. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was such a difficult question, such a broad uh, question, quite difficult to summarize, but you've done a great job. Thank you so much. Um, uh, before we get to the figures that you uh, talk about, um, could you just very briefly explain to listeners who don't know much about Sri Lankan history what the Mahavamsa is? I know there's no singular reading, so we're going to get to that, I think, in the chapters, um, in the discussion of the chapters itself. But could you just give uh, tell the listeners what the Mahavamsa is and the significance it has uh, gained or always has had, uh, depending on what you think the situation is. Right. Sorry, I, I, I missed that part of your question. So the Mahavamsa is uh, literally the great text. Uh, Vamsas are uh, these kind of quasi-religious, quasi-historical texts in which uh, they're, they're like big genealogies in which history is written. Uh, so the Mahavamsa, uh, there's another one called the Chulavamsa and the Deepavamsa. There are a number of these, but the Mahavamsa is considered the great uh, chronicle. Uh, but this is the problem, and this is where nationalism and colonial knowledge production kind of come into uh, come into conversation, and then and then there's a kind of a interdependent process in the late 19th and early 20th century because the Mahavamsa was there but it was not a very critical text in pre-colonial times. I mean it was there but it was not a historical text in the modern sense and there was no tradition of historiography 
in the modern sense again in pre-colonial Sri Lanka. But and and the Mahamamsa is a in a way a religious, politico-religious tract written from a particular worldview about how uh, what Buddhism means for the island and how a good king needs to be a good Buddhist king. So that's the kind of ideology on which it is uh, written. It was written somewhere in the 6th century AD uh, first and then it kept being added to. Uh, And what happens in the 19th century is with sort of Orientalist scholarship, which focuses very much on textual traditions rather than oral traditions because textual textual traditions are kind of reified as as uh, as an index of civility as an index of civilizational sophistication etc so if, if a certain culture has a textual tradition that is seen as something very legitimate that is seen as something very valid and it is taken as kind of hard evidence of the history of that culture, which is why, for instance, when colonialism looks at Africa or colonial discourse looks at Africa, often the claim was made that Africa has no history because it, it had oral traditions rather than written traditions. So this the same thing happens in India as well with Sanskrit texts. Uh, so what happens is that uh, the Mahavansa is kind of quote-unquote discovered. I mean, this word is in itself problematic because it, there was nothing to be discovered. It was already there. Orientalist scholarship discovers it, uh, then kind of reifies it, uh, elevates it to uh, a kind of a historical source text. And there is some interesting material written about this as well, uh, where in this process of textual reification, uh, oral commentaries that existed alongside the Mahavansa, which were very important in the reading of the Mahavansa, get sidelined. And it is only the text that is read. And of course, in the textual reading, you can see uh, in some of the translation, for instance, George Turner's translation, how certain kinds of European models of history are imposed onto this reading. And and for instance, the periodization, uh, the characterization of the nation, uh, etc. These ideas are kind of anachronistically uh, projected onto this text and it is read in a certain way. Uh, And then in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries that this text becomes uh, quite popular in its translated forms within the Sri Lankan elite as well, particularly the Sinhala elite. And it becomes a kind of a source text which people keep going back to uh, to talk about the history of the country. Uh, so so one of the key incidents, for instance, in and, and, and in the 1950s, I mean, and then it just continues like that into the 1950s and into the modern era. Uh, this becomes like the master text to which a lot of the national, single nationalist ideologues begin to refer without an appreciation of that, the politics of knowledge production that produced and that placed this text in the way it does. So one of the key incidents is this, uh, uh, this battle between the single king Dutugamu and the, again, the to, quote-unquote Tamil king Elara, because he was not Tamil in the modern sense. He was a Chola king. He spoke Dravidian, Dravidian language, uh, but that doesn't make him an ethnic Tamil in the modern sense. Uh, so, so this battle is read as a battle between uh, an invasionary Tamil force and uh, an indigenous Sinhala patriot and the indigenous Sinhala patriot king wins the day 
uh, and that is seen as kind of a unification of the nation. But of course, you know, there are multiple ironies here because again, there is historical evidence to suggest that so-called Tamil mercenaries fought on Dutugamnu's side, the Singhala king's side, and that Singhala mercenaries actually fought on uh, Elara's side. So obviously the, uh, what if you want to call it, the social dynamics of that time were very different. But the problem is that text is there and that text is now, I mean, it's in the school curriculum, for instance, people refer to it very, uh, like, as if it contains verifiable, factual history. Uh, and it is used to make claims about uh, the, 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 the Singhala legitimacy to this territory uh, and then also to sort of exclude other groups. So, Excellent. yeah. No, that's great. Thank you so much for, for that background. I think that really helps. Um, okay, so in Chapter 3, you look at the much-discussed Anagarika Dharmapala. Um, who was he? Why is he important for your book? And how has he been discussed in the literature thus far? With regards to the latter, I'm particularly interested in how your work relates to Stephen Kemper's recent books, Rescued from the Nation. Right. Uh, yeah, so Anagarika Dharmapala is uh, an important figure partly because of the way he has been constructed retrospectively in both nationalist, single nationalist discourse, as well as in sort of anti-nationalist liberal discourse. Because both camps, in a way, take Dharmapala as this sort of master figure who signifies the emergence of a certain kind of majoritarian, uh, discriminatory, single nationalism in the late 19th century. But what both these readings fail to point out is to actually historicize him and to try and read him within the milieu that he emerged which in the late 19th century. None of these identity categories were solidified in the way they are today. And the dynamics, the religious as well as the social dynamics are very different. So Dharmapala was, you know, he came from a fairly privileged background. He uh, was born to... Uh, an entrepreneurial father who was a who produced furniture uh, and who used the colonial economy uh, to to become quite wealthy. They uh, they, they were exporting, I think, uh, furniture to places like Mauritius, etc. And Dharmapala's brother uh, was one of Sri Lanka's first uh, specialist medical doctors. He trained in Edinburgh. Uh, so you can see the family background itself was. I mean, he was he was from a fairly elite kind of background and he had a good command of English because he went to missionary schools etc and uh, he was also kind of a slightly sort of offbeat uh, character who uh, becomes a kind of a lay religious missionary with a very deep conviction and a very deep uh, mission in life to kind of modernize and yeah, in, in a way, sort of modernize and revive Buddhism. So he becomes part of this Buddhist revival moment, uh, movement. Uh, he travels to, uh, I, if I'm getting my dates right, 1898 or 18, uh, 1893 to uh, Chicago, to the World Parliament of Religions alongside uh, Swami Vivekananda. There makes a big impression there because he was well versed in the Bible as well. So when he spoke about Buddhism, he could speak in ways that related to an audience that was only familiar with Christianity. So also kind of part of this movement where Christianity itself globally was coming under attack by rationalists and, 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 and the kind of the scientific discourse of 
the early 20th century and so he placed buddhism within that but of course that was not his own innovation there were other scholars european scholars as well uh, doing this as well uh, so uh, and then most of his life was i mean he was never a, truly a political figure he was never part of any political party he was more or less a religious figure he was a religious missionary and one of his greatest campaigns was to try and uh, win back the buddhaga uh, site in india uh, the site where the buddha is believed to have attained nirvana uh, under buddhist control because at that point it was under the control of hindu priests uh, which he succeeds he succeeds in doing that he forms the mahabodhi society in india uh, then he starts publishing uh, a uh, a newspaper called the singhala buddhist in sri lanka so he sees also he saw also kind of uh, plugs into this kind of nascent print capitalism in 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 sri lanka at that time and print as a mass medium begins to emerge and a lot of buddhist and singhala publications come so that becomes a site where he can kind of circulate his ideas etc but when you go back to the archives and look at uh, how other people etc related to him you discover that he was always seen as a kind of a maverick nobody was quite sure where to place him and sometimes he was kind of considered a nuisance as well and uh, he was made persona non grata not persona non grata actually he was he he, he lived in exile because the colonial, colonial government suspected him of sedition wrongly uh, and uh, he had to live in exile in india for quite a quite a considerable period of his adult life uh, and uh, he he towards the latter part of his life he became an ordained buddhist monk and he passed away in india uh, and uh, and in a way very ironically as well uh, his his dying wish was to be reborn in india not in sri lanka uh, to be to continue his buddhist uh, missionary work uh, so but in post colonial sri lanka he becomes kind of reconstituted and reconstructed as this nationalist uh, ideologue and nationalist figure not that his writing doesn't lend itself to that it does but once you kind of if you do critical historical work you realize that the story is not as simple as that this man had many other aspects to his life uh, so he he becomes part of the sort of the single nationalist master narrative and becomes reconstructed as this figure and and one of the reasons for that is also uh, convenience because of the availability of a very detailed rich archive uh, of his writings uh, very readily available because uh, and and then it is edited and published by ananda guruge in somewhere in the 1960s uh, and then while liberal uh, sort of anti-nationalist scholarship takes him up also i would actually argue is because of the existence of this archive it's very easy it's in english it's available so scholars can easily go and begin to read it but i think far too much has been placed on him and also to come to steven kemper uh, i think that's the brilliance of steven kemper's move as well because he he draws the title of that book from uh, the the historian of china prasanjit dwara Uh, rescued uh, the nation rescued from history so in a way what uh, kempa is trying to do is to read dharmapala outside of the kind of the convenient nationalist framework within which he has been placed both by single nationalists as well as critical scholarship uh, 
and to try and see other ways in which because you know for most of his life he was outside of Sri Lanka and he was doing missionary work globally so the nation was yes it was a part of his focus but maybe 70-80% of his energies were spent on spreading the message of Buddhism across the world uh, so so I think it's important that we go back to these historical figures and try and recontextualize and rehistoricize them so that we can read them in different Absolutely. And yeah, this is a really great chapter and um, uh, and something that, you know, I think the readers should, uh, when they read this chapter, they should pay attention to, at least from what I saw, was uh, you characterizing him through universalism abroad and particularism at home, which I thought was really convincing and really helpful in understanding Dharmapala. Now, in, chapter, in the next chapter, you explore the former Sri Lankan Prime Minister, uh, SWRD Bandranaike, uh, can you talk about the rise of Bandra Naike as a political leader and how he relates to Dharmapala and Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism? I found your analysis of his memoirs about his time in Oxford particularly interesting. And I was wondering if you could talk about them in addressing uh, Bandra Naike. Yes. So now uh, the the choice of uh, Dharmapala and Bandra Naike in my book as father figures is not arbitrary. It's not accidental. The reason is that in mainstream singular nationalist discourse, these two figures are taken as the two big historical figures in uh, the history of single nationalist discourse. I mean, you won't find it in a textbook, but uh, for many modern single day single nationalist ideologues like Gunada Samarasekar, who's in the next chapter that I discuss, or Nalinda Silva, his colleague, uh, Banda Dharmapala kind of represents uh, and a very early. Uh, early kind of nascent nationalist consciousness which is not particularly theorized or which is not particularly political it's more like a cultural expression uh, where sort of Dharmapala almost intuitively grasps single nationalism uh, kind of the idea of single nationalism that's how modern single nationalists understand him Bandarnak is important because he is seen as the man who politically provides the space politically or provides the institutional space for the realization of Dharmapala's nationalism as a political reality. So uh, Bandarnayaka comes from a completely anglicized kind of background. He, uh, for most of his life, he was actually educated at home. He had a tutor who was an Oxford graduate. So his first language was English. Uh, and uh, he he was sort of destined to go to Oxford, as he says in his memoirs itself. So 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 in a way, his his father had made that decision. And if you look at his name itself, it carries sort of the weight of colonial uh, uh, sort of uh, the kind of the colonial lineage he has, because it's Solomon West Ridgeway Dias Bandarnak, SWRD Bandarnak. Solomon West Ridgeway are actually. Uh, uh, governors, former governors of uh, colonial governors of Sri Lanka, and his father gave those names quite deliberately to him. But uh, once he goes to Oxford, Madarnayaka uh, seems to have been quite influenced by the kind of uh, decolonizing thought that other non white uh, students, uh, Asian students, etc., had brought to Oxford. He associated with such people as well. But it was also kind of a very tensed association because on the one hand, Bandarnayaka uh, is struggling with his own self-identity. 
because he he grew up as in in colonial Ceylon as uh, in a, in a very privileged lifestyle. But once he goes to Oxford, he discovers that he suddenly kind of dis- suddenly made to confront his ethnic identity and his racial identity and how that is that he is essentially a second class citizen in colonial Britain. And this is something that he can't quite reconcile with. And therefore, the way he tries to rationalize that is by positioning himself as superior, for instance, to his Indian counterparts and also to working class British people as well. So there's this fascinating incident uh, right at the beginning of the memoirs where he's boarded in a, like a working class white home and uh, the absolute condescension with which he views that home is it's. Uh, I mean, it's both sad, and in a way, you laugh at it as well today. Uh, so, but so so it's a, it's a very kind of a very uh, tense relationship. Uh, but obviously, he has he was influenced by this period, uh, and he began to think along the lines of decolonization as well. And once he comes back to Sri Lanka in the late nineteen twenties, uh, he is also influenced by Gandhian thought. In fact, he writes. Uh, a kind of a, a quasi-Gandhian uh, kind of little political tract called the uh, the spinning wheel and the paddy uh, field. Uh, uh, but that that sort of Gandhian period uh, doesn't last very much uh, in his politics. Then he switches to sort of a more, uh, a, a more kind of a developmental nationalist kind of uh, discourse. Uh, uh, but... I think what is sort of unique about Bandar Naik is that uh, more than any other politician, uh, elite politician of that time, Bandar Naik was really invested in reinventing himself as a kind of an indigenous decolonizing leader. And to that end, he, as an adult, he learns singer and becomes quite proficient in singer, able to speak in public quite fluently, uh, etc. But what is interesting here again also is that I think while Bandarnaka kind of intellectually taps into single nationalist discourse, I'm not sure whether he ever actually effectively identifies himself with single nationalism. And one of the big or one of the most telling examples of this is that uh, in the late 1920s and early 1930s in Sri Lanka, you get this movement called the Hela Haula. Uh, Hela Haula is this sort of extreme indigenous identity discourse or uh, group that uh, follows this sort of extreme Sinhala uh, identity discourse where they say that Sinhala identity is entirely autochthonous uh, and they want to disassociate uh, Sinhala from the standard Mahavamsa narrative of this errant prince Vijay who comes from north of India and colonizers and civilizers Sri Lanka. Instead, they argue, no, the Sinhala language, Sinhala culture, Sinhala ethnic identity are all very much the products of the island itself. Uh, and they, they had an enormous influence at that time in the, in the, 19, uh, the late 1920s and 1930s, the same time that Bandar Naik was kind of reinventing himself as this anti-colonial politician. But you see almost no reference in his writing to this movement. Uh, but it is very clear that he uh, he would have even he met and he would have spoken to uh, particularly Munidas Kumaratunga, the leader of this movement, uh, and they were actually together in one uh, kind of social uh, forum as well, kind of political lobbying forum as well. But uh, but Bandarnaka never seems to quite uh, uh, 
uh, you know uh, identify with that discourse so that's very interesting and then also once he comes to power there's this anecdote i don't know how true this is uh, again kind of telling of the kind of the ambiguities within his own self uh, in his own identity is that at the first one of the first cabinet meetings they had apparently served western food and he had said no this is we can't have this uh, we are a newly independent nation we need to serve authentic sri lankan or sinhala cuisine so next time around they serve uh, what are called string hoppers i mean if anybody you can google that and see a string hopper is like a noodle uh, uh, which is uh, but uh, it, it's kind of one uh, it's uh, kind of an interwoven noodle if you like uh, which cannot be eaten with utensils you need to use your fingers but apparently bandar naik a very sort of very glibly proceeds to take his knife and fork and start eating the idiapa with that so it's kind of telling uh, the string hopper with that so it's kind of telling of who the man was uh, but uh, he is also enormously influenced for other reasons for much more darker reasons because he is the person who institutionalizes uh, singhala as the official language and which results in tremendous political turmoil and in a way becomes the catalyst for the modern singhala tamil conflict in many ways i mean again you can't you can't pinpoint it and say it's only the official languages act there are other factors as well but this becomes like the catalyst around which the whole conflict erupts and uh, but again he seems to be someone who was a liberal at heart as well because immediately after this he tries to sign a pact with sjv chelvanagam the tamil leader the, the the sort of the most prominent tamil leader at that time uh, to to devolve power Uh, to to move to a kind of a federal uh, agreement but that is what then results in a major uh, singhala backlash uh, and uh, in the end uh, bandarnak ends up being assassinated though that is a little murky whether he was assassinated due to his the ethnic politics of the time or whether it was sort of uh, business interests which were unhappy with the kind of uh, process of nationalization that he was doing particularly he took back the port and many other economic centers back from british control to sri lankan control so whether there were other factors nobody is quite sure of uh, but i mean he's 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 a very inter- interesting you know kind of mix of contradictions but but he is not unique if you, even if you go to somebody like nehru you see very similar kind of uh, identity politics and uh, you know issues of identity because all of them grew up in a very sort of anglophile almost sort of anglophone anglophile kind of uh, environment but suddenly a demand is placed on them to sort of reinvent themselves as indigenous leaders mm-hmm. thank you no i really really enjoyed that chapter thank you so much um so now in the next chapter you move on to exploring uh, gunadasa amarasekara uh, who you mentioned earlier um you know could you briefly explain who he was and uh, you know his political trajectory um what i'm interested in is how um he uses dharmapala and bandaranaikan bring buddhism and marxism into conversation in the early 1980s yeah so gunadasa amrasekara is one of sri lanka's uh, finest he's still alive one of uh, sri lanka's finest novelists uh, poets and essayists uh, of the 20th century and next to martin vikramasinghe who was one generation older to him Amarasekara comes from uh, a village called uh, uh, Badegama close to Gaul in the south of uh, Sri Lanka uh, 
uh, and uh, he enters the University of Peradeniya in the 1950s. Uh, and under the, and and is you know the Peradeniya at that time is this place of tremendous cultural activity. Here is a new nation looking for sort of a new. Uh, cultural aesthetic voice, if you like, to express it, itself. So you have people like Edrivira Sarachandra, who was uh, this famous dramatist and famous professor of Singhala, doing all kinds of experiments with uh, new forms of theatre, etc. And Amarasekhar is very much in the middle of this milieu. And uh, he makes a name. Uh, he's actually, I mean, he tra- he's, tra- he's training to be a medical student, a dentist by profession, and he actually practiced as a dentist as well. Uh, but he was very much a part of this art artistic cultural milieu in 1950s in Peradeniya. And he was essentially a very sort of radical young writer who experimented both with form and content in his early writings. So he explored taboo subjects like incest, uh, sexuality, uh, etc. in most of his early writings. And formally also they were quite uh, innovative. They, they tried to engage with sort of... Uh, uh, forms you find in modernist fiction in Europe at that time. Uh, but somewhere in the 1960s, Amarasekara undergoes a kind of an ideological change, uh, which is uh, partly influenced by uh, people like Martin Vikramasinghe as well, where he begins to kind of recant his sort of original uh, radical cultural pursuits and begins to reinvent himself more and more as a kind of a nationalist didact. So, uh, and and uh, uh, he, I mean, he along with uh, Nalinda Silva, this is much later in the late 1970s, early 1980s, they form uh, uh, this uh, movement called the Jatika Chintane or nationalist consciousness would be kind of a loose translation. Uh, which is possibly the most intellectually coherent and influential articulation of singular nationalism, uh, even in the country, even today. Because Jataka Chintanya is followed by even many of the people, many of the politicians in power today, uh, in, in Sri Lanka's parliament uh, today as well. Uh, so, uh, and, and his fiction is very, very influential and very, very popular. So what he does is... Uh, in his initial phase, both uh, Gunadasa Amrasekara and, uh, and uh, Nalinda Silva have a leftist history. Uh, so they, they, they are very much uh, sympathetic towards uh, the left. They are also very much sympathetic towards the struggles of particularly the Sinhala youth, uh, particularly educated uh, rural youth, uh, which come to the fore in 1972 with the, uh, uh, the Maoist kind of rebellion staged by the JVP, the Janata Mimukti in 1972, they tried to take power, which is bloodily suppressed by a left-of-center government at that time. And um, and all of these writers are very sensitive to this. And so is Amarasekara. Uh, and, but the thing is, I think from the 60s, when he makes this sort of turn towards nationalism, he uh, both sort of politically as well as theoretically and conceptually begins to question uh, ideas that come quote unquote from outside and begins to be slowly become resistant to them and within that moment uh, there's this strong need to kind of indigenize everything uh, so uh, there are there were two parallel discourses at this time and I forgot to say this right at the beginning so I use the term Apekama 
Alongside, there was another term called Deshiya. So Deshiya or Swadeshiya means local or indigenous with no real sort of ethnic or cultural overtones attached to it. Uh, the word Deshi. So that it's it's a more accommodative term. So Deshi could be then Tamil, Muslim, whatever, but local and indigenous. But Apekama, the word that then begins to circulate by the, about the 1960s in a very influential way, is much more marked by single identity. Apekama is about being singular. It, it is not about Tamil indigeneity. It's not about Muslim indigeneity. And that is the discourse to which Amarasekar then begins to gravitate uh, by the 1970s, etc. Uh, and within that, of course, he, uh, uh, you know, because of the leftist sympathies, he is also looking at the left as a movement that can kind of bring about a truly indigenous uh, political revival in the country. But in order to indigenize it, he wants it to be combined with Buddhism. And he writes this, uh, this uh, sort of polemic called uh, is Anagarika Dharmapala uh, Marxist or uh, Anaga, Anagarika Dharmapala Marxvadi Mark, Mark is the singular uh, version of it, uh, which he publishes in 1980. That is about eight years after the JVP, the leftist insurrection. And in a way, that pamphlet is addressing the the, the rural youth who uh, went, uh, who, who supported the JVP and kind of making a plea to them to think about, you know, Yes, leftist political thinking is good, but let's think of ways in which we can indigenize this. But uh, so, so that is in the 1980s, but by about 1983 and later into the mid-1980s, he becomes even much more parochially nationalist, like completely resistant. I mean, he comes to a position where, to, where essentially he says, you know, Marxism, leftist thinking, none of these things are relevant to us. All we need can be found in our own Buddhist heritage. That is all we need. And uh, we, we can kind of reconstruct this country based on those ideas. And uh, in a way that happens in a context uh, after 1983, after the anti-Tamil riots, uh, there's a lot of scholarship uh, produced which kind of sees Sinhala nationalism and Sinhala identity almost as a kind of pathology, which is majoritarian, anti-minority, violent, even genocidal in certain ways. And the, the, the turning away of people like Amrasekara from anything that is perceived as coming from the outside or the West is partly a reaction to that as well. Uh, so that's in a kind of a nutshell Amrasekara's uh, uh, sort of political trajectory. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And you took care of my next question. So we can move on to the conclusion um, where you talk about uh, alternative cultural visions to the ones you've detailed uh, thus far. Uh, could you tell us about some of these other imaginaries and what their significance is for you? Yeah. So particularly in the realm of culture. Now, uh, one of the reasons that I look at culture, I mean, uh, this is a theoretical point for me as well. Uh, yes, nationalism needs to be studied through the harder institutional aspects like the formation of the state, uh, political parties, etc. These are very critical. But uh, as Benedict Anderson's classic, uh, you know, 1983 uh, publication imagined uh, communities argued, culture is in a way the discourse that kind of sustains and transmits uh, the idea of the nation. It is, it is what, in a way, uh, shapes the form of the nation. And 
in the 1950s, as I said, in Amarsekar's own work, there were already alternative visions of what Sinhala modernity could be. Uh, because, you know, 1950s is the time when, uh, particularly within Sinhala culture, and this was happening in Tamil culture as well, but I'm not qualified, unfortunately, due to uh, deficiencies in Sri Lanka's education system. I'm not proficient in Tamil, uh, but I know that they were happening in Tamil as well. Uh, there were many debates at the level of aesthetics as the level of culture about what kind of forms, themes, content uh, could form a truly Sri Lankan uh, culture. So Amrasekara at the beginning was part of this movement. But as I say, in the 60s, there's this kind of critical turning uh, where, where he kind of turns towards this very narrowly defined sense of authenticity. Uh, so, but parallel to this, you do see uh, other uh, or forms of uh, particularly aesthetic production, such as the uh, drama of Sugatapal the Silva, who looks at uh, the, the, the problems of urban-rural youth, for instance, and in a way implicitly undermining uh, the kind of the nation-state-centered majority cultural discourse by doing so, because in a way, you know, there's nothing celebratory here, because... Uh, um, and here it's 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 kind of a good comparison to look at what is happening in Sri Lanka with a place like uh, say Kenya or Nigeria because you, if you look at the work of uh, writers like Chinua Achabe or Ngugi Vatiangu they also start out uh, with this great sense of uh, sort of admiration and purpose about the newly independent Kenyan or Nigerian nation but very soon like within the first decade of independence, that dream begins to sour very fast and they begin to write in a very different mode. The content of their writing changes as well as the form of their writing changes. Uh, now, this doesn't quite happen in mainstream uh, literary or aesthetic production in Sri Lanka. And I believe part of the reason is that the welfare state model in Sri Lanka survives into the 1980s. And it is only in the 1980s that sort of social compact between the state and the society begins to really fail and crumble. So it's only at that point that kind of criticism emerges. But from the 60s to the 80s, you do get this avant-garde, alternative filmmaking, theater, song, etc., but which never becomes a mainstream form of, uh, never achieves a real mainstream dynamic. And the institutional recognition also goes for the kind of mainstream cu cultural values represented by people like Amrasekhar. Uh, and, and and that's where I can link it back to the song as well, because that song is an embodiment, the, that song's form and its content is an embodiment of that cultural discourse of authenticity. And that is why there is such an adverse reaction in 2016 when it is perceived as being sung in a non-indigenous way. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, could you also talk about, going back to the question of authenticity as you just did, could you talk about the what you describe as the death of authenticity, both politically and developmentally. Uh, right. What do you mean by that part? Yeah. So uh, by the death of authenticity, I don't mean authenticity in general. Uh, the, I, the notion of authenticity is, I think, something uh, sort of innately tied to a person's self-identity. And it, it can never go away. I mean, you can't live in the world if you don't feel that you're authentic to yourself in some way. 
But the authenticity that I specifically refer to here is the kind of authenticity that is politically weaponized and mobilized and institutionalized in Sri Lanka from the 1950s to the late 1980s. That discourse of authenticity kind of goes into crisis in the late 1980s, partly due to changes in the nature of the state as well as the economy. Uh, Because up to the 1980s, under the welfare state model, as I said, there is kind of a strong compact between the state as well as the society. And within that, the kind of cultural discourse represented by Gunadas Amrasekar, where, you know, there's this symbolic triad of single authenticity, which is the uh, village, the irrigation tank, uh, sorry, the, 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 the paddy field, the irrigation tank and the temple. Uh, this is the like the symbolic triad, uh, which you, you this is a trope that you find recurring in many, many productions and in development discourse as well, because the fact that Sri Lanka invested so heavily in uh, peasant agrarian development and massive irrigation projects rather than industrialization, etc., was due to the presence of this imaginary. So it was not just aesthetic, it was also developmental. But by the 1980s, with the coming to uh, power in 1978 of the J.R. regime, Sri Lanka makes a very drastic change in its economic strategy. Uh, it, it goes into sort of a very neoliberal, what is called an open economic policy. And neoliberal uh, capital begins to sort of really flood into uh, Sri Lanka. And that changes the social fabric also quite rapidly. Uh, there is a uh, you know, for instance, state-controlled mass media, which existed up to so the mid-1980s, suddenly you find private players in the field who are not necessarily invested in protecting or propagating that particular cultural line. They are driven by profit motives. So they then bring in sort of other cultural significations, other kinds of cultural discourses begin to enter the market and begin to enter the popular discourse. And these begin to undermine uh, the 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 kind of discourse that people like Amrasekar very carefully nurtured uh, the, for you know 20 30 years after independence and that is the kind of death of authenticity i mean and also even developmentally then the vision becomes okay we we can't develop this country anymore based on these sort of grandiose visions of a hydraulic irrigated agriculture but we need to industrialize. We need, and, and you know, what instead of the paddy field, what becomes the real ubiquitous signifier development is the garment factory, uh, which which garment factories are built uh, all over the island. So, so there is a real change both aesthetically as well as in development discourse, and that is what I call the death of authenticity. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, now, before uh, you know, I let you leave. We, I've taken up so much of your time. Thank you so much. Uh, could you just tell us what you're working on next? What's your next project? Yes. So I, uh, at, right at the moment, I'm not really sort of very. Uh, how would you say working in a very systematic way on anything? Because <laughs> partly because I'm an administrator, a full-time administrator as a director of the institute, so that takes up a lot of my time. Of but course, there of are course. two lines of intellectual inquiry that I have been pursuing. One is to uh, the the last question that you asked about these alternative imaginaries. So that is a story that needs to be told, particularly from the perspective of aesthetics and culture. And in fact, I have 
just finalized the chapter, which will hopefully be published sometime this year, looking at leftist, leftist aesthetics in Sri Lanka, where I look at the avant-garde cultural production much more in detail. Uh, so, so alongside this story of authenticity, uh, you need to tell that other story as well. So, so that's one aspect that I'm looking at. But I'm also now with the coronavirus pandemic, I became really interested in how these notions of indigeneity are, uh, are operating in current, actually, medical discourse and scientific discourse, because there was a strong movement in Sri Lanka, uh, which which also became a bit of a joke, actually, uh, of, of trying to promote indigenous alternatives that were supposedly able to cure corona. Uh, and the kind of the power politics the, that were play, playing out there were very interesting because uh, uh, in, a, in a way sort of Western scientists, Western trained medical doctors suddenly became curators of indigenous knowledge, marginalizing indigenous Ayurvedic practitioners. So the knowledge politics that were playing out there were very interesting and they are informed by some of the stuff that I talk about in this book as well. So those are the two things that I'm currently working on. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that when it's out. Uh, thank you so much, Harshana. Thank you very much, Sami, for inviting me. And yeah, thanks. Cheers. It was a good discussion. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.